Thanks for joining us for the Team Up podcast produced by Punahou School. I'm Alan Murabayashi, an alumnus from the class of 1990. As part of our Puns United coverage of the COVID-19 outbreak, we're interviewing alumni working on the front lines of this global health crisis. They're out in force playing instrumental roles in helping their communities across the world during this unprecedented time. I've known Dr. Lena Miyakawa for years, and when I first met her, she was simply introduced as a friend of a friend while we were hanging out at Diamond Head Beach. Her gregarious, easygoing nature never hinted at her career as an MD, and now a highly respected pulmonologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. We frequently gather for Sunday dinners with a group of Punahou friends at my Manhattan apartment. The numbers in New York City are hard to fathom. Again, you look at the number of cases in the country, you'll see that New York is uh, an outlier in the number of cases. It's not even close. On Tuesday, March 24th, when I conducted this interview, there were 12,000 cases of COVID. As of the morning of March 26th, there are now 20,000 cases and 280 deaths. In some parts of the city, refrigerated trucks act as temporary morgues. A number of states are asking travelers from New York to quarantine themselves for 14 days because of the infection rate. The numbers are so high that I've decided to stay at my parents' home in Manoa for the time being. But saving lives in New York is what Lena does. And after a long day at the hospital, we caught up via Skype. Hi, my name is Lena Miyakawa. I'm class of 2004. I'm a pulmonary critical care medicine physician. That means I'm an intensivist. I'm located in New York City, New York. So before the COVID outbreak occurred, can you explain what a pulmonologist does on a day-to-day basis? So I do a mix of things. So pulmonary means that I'm doing lungs. So most of the time I'm inpatient, meaning that I'm seeing patients with asthma, COPD, but I also do outpatient clinics. So I'll see, again, patients with asthma as an outpatient. And then I also see pulmonary embolism, which is essentially clots inside the lungs. So that's also inpatient. And an intensivist means you're working in the ICU? What, what does that mean? So intensivist means it's all inpatient. It's all in the intensive care unit. Um, I mostly work in a medical ICU, but I do also cross over to the surgical ICU and I help surgeons take care of um, intensive care needs. The COVID outbreak obviously started in China back in November and sort of accelerated into December and January. When did the discussion about COVID start happening in your hospital? I would say we saw our first case about two weeks ago now, a week and a half ago. Um, Our discussion started about four weeks ago. We knew that it was coming. We knew that it was pretty imminent. So we started our preparations then. And, And what did the preparations consist of at that point? Just looking at the numbers coming out of China, we knew that we were going to be very frontline and that we were going to run out of everything, including ventilators, personal protective equipment. Um, that includes masks, gowns, gloves, everything to clean everything that we're using. And so we start to count what we had, uh, figured out what we could flex into, meaning what we could use in our hospital system to see if we needed to get more help from other um, other hospitals and other uh, cities. And so you're already seeing an influx of patients due to COVID at the hospital? So I think I don't have the most up-to-date uh, numbers, but 5% of what we're seeing glo- globally for COVID is now in New York City. 
So we are seeing a huge increase right now. In the last week and a half, um, we've now had to open two separate ICUs in addition to our own ICU. I just opened a whole new ICU today, and I have built a whole new team of doctors, physician assistants, uh, respiratory therapists, and nurses today uh, to open up another COVID ICU. So that's COVID patients only. That's not including other medical patients that have been ruled out for COVID. Do you have a sense in terms of percentage, the number of COVID cases that are coming in that are acute versus requiring intensive care? Sure. So just looking at our hospital numbers right now, it's um, pretty low. Anything from two to 5% of what comes into the hospital ends up becoming an ICU patient. And the rest are usually on the medicine floor, or some of them can get discharged straight from the emergency room. The ones on the medical floor, we do see a percentage of them that get a lot worse very quickly. So what we're seeing is within the first couple of days coming into the hospital, they deteriorate and decompensate within 12 to 24 hours. It's a lot quicker than what we're seeing um, with other bacterial infections, other flu-like symptoms. They go from being on just regular air, so just no oxygen, uh, to a couple liters of nasal cannula oxygen, all the way up to uh, being intubated within 12 hours. So, you know, the, the general understanding is that this is a disease that affects mostly the, the elderly. Are you seeing a, a younger population as well? So in our hospital, mostly we have seen elderly. The youngest patient I have currently is in their 50s um, in the ICU. Um, I'm talking, talking mostly from the ICU standpoint. There are uh, some patients that are younger on the medical floors. I do. I am in constant contact with all the other hospitals in the New York City uh, boroughs, and we are seeing a few patients. One just got intubated that is pregnant, um, so in their 20s. There's another patient on ECMO, which is a whole other topic. Um, essentially a machine that is a heart outside of the body um, that is acting like a heart and lung outside of the body. That's also another 30-year-old. So there's a couple of very sick 20 to 40-year-olds um, kind of peppered throughout uh, New York City. I want to go back to this idea of equipment and availability. Are you at the point of rationing? Are you at the point of reusing face masks and eye shields? It's a really good question. Um, unfortunately, when we first started, I think, you know, we were very strict about how to use our PPE or personal protective equipment. We, every single time we went in the room, we made sure that we threw away, you know, the gown, the gloves, the, the mask. At this point, um, we are still throwing away our gowns and gloves. That's what gets dirty the most, but we are reusing the N95 masks. Um, those are the airborne masks. Now, I know that CDC and WHO, they do not recommend airborne precautions for these patients. However, um, in the ICU, we're doing the most high-risk procedures, things like intubations, bronchoscopies, suctioning, CPR. Um, and so with that, there's a lot of uh, aerosolization of the droplets. And so what we recommend or what we're recommended in ICU is to use N95 masks. So we're reusing that having droplet masks on top of the N95 masks, and then we are reusing eyewear. We have goggles or we have face shields that we're coming out, cleaning, and then reusing those. I understand that initially there was some guidance from CDC that you should be working in a negative pressure environment. Have those been relaxed just due to the sheer numbers of the things? So to protect us, um, we are considered a very... Um, 
we are considered a commodity at this point, critical care physicians. And so they are trying to protect us. And anybody that is intubated, anyone that is on a mechanical ventilator is in a negative pressure room currently. That has not been relaxed yet. We are seeing a surge and I don't know how that is going to change in the next couple of days. Every day, every hour, we're seeing changes. Whatever the book was, it's been thrown out the window and uh, we're having to adapt every single day. So we'll see. But right now I'm working in negative pressure rooms. If we have to do a high risk procedure, uh, we are in a negative pressure room. Obviously, there's a lot of procedural changes that are being made probably every day at the hospital. But from a clinical perspective, are you and other doctors speaking to doctors from China or South Korea to understand what they went through and, and how to best attack the problem here? So it's, that's a really cool topic. Um, I don't think we've ever had anything, an outbreak like this in the social media age, obviously. And with that comes a lot of information sharing. There's pros and cons to this, but I'm part of a COVID um, team on Slack and also on WhatsApp, essentially with uh, physicians from all over the world, Italy, China, UK. Uh, we're sharing information every single day. Uh, it's very cool. So uh, we are speaking to them a little bit more on a formal side. Our physicians, our leadership in our hospital uh, has some ties in China. So we are getting a direct contact and we are sharing information Again, I don't think anybody really knows what the right answers are here. And so the more information we share, maybe we'll get more answers, but they're all anecdotal at this point. We've heard a lot about the transmissibility of this disease. I'm, I'm wondering, though, if you can address in layman's terms from the pulmonary standpoint, what's so devastating to the lungs and the breathing capacity of a, of a person infected with this disease? Sure. So I think we talked a little bit about how it's uh, transmitted via droplet. So it's not airborne, it's not in the air, but if, if you sneeze, obviously the droplets can travel about six feet. That's why they tell you to stay away six feet in the grocery stores when you go to the um, go shopping. It has been found on vents, um, so ventilation systems. So inside the, the crates or grates, I should say, the droplets have landed there and they've, they've been found there. So. Uh, does it travel a couple feet? Yes, it does. Now, once it travels to you and it lands on your mucous membrane, so let's say your mouth, your nose, your eyes, uh, you, it lands on your hands and then you wipe your eyes um, or nose. Once it gets in, uh, it causes essentially an inflammatory reaction. So the thing that we see initially is usually a type of pneumonia. So an infection inside the lungs, a, a viral infection. Now that causes an inflammatory response. So on a CAT scan, it looks like what we call ground glass opacity. Okay, and it's pretty well described actually from China because they were doing CAT scans on everybody. After that, what it looks like in layman's terms is you start requiring more oxygen. Then your lungs essentially shut down. You can't take deep breaths. You become very short of breath. Um, and then after that, the next step is getting to be on a mechanical ventilator. Right now, what we're trying getting into is we can't even oxygenate, meaning we can't deliver enough oxygen with the machine. And so we're having to do other things, like, for example, putting people on their stomachs face down to try to flip them. It's called proning to see if we can uh, get them better. 
So this thing called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, that's the syndrome that happens when these patients get intubated and they're getting worse and worse. Their lungs get very stiff, uh, not compliant. They're not able to take deep breaths or oxygenate. A lot of people are sitting at home trying to figure out how they can best help the effort. You know, I've seen projects to sew masks for uh, physicians and nurses and, and caps and whatnot. Do, do you think that these are positive efforts that really can be used in the hospitals or are these just sort of busy work? I've gotten a couple of um, uh, people reach out to me and I really do do rep- appreciate the support. It's really great that there's this outpouring of support towards uh, us physicians and healthcare workers. I don't know how we're going to be able to use these masks only because they're cloth. I don't know what the actual droplet size are going to be able to go through these specific cloths. How are we supposed to standardize them? I don't know. However, knowing that we are having such a shortage of PPE, we may have to end up using things like that. So I don't know if it's busy work right now, but you know, only time will tell. We'll see how things go. I've read some pieces about life and death ethical choices that doctors are going to be going to have to make in terms of, you know, who who literally gets the ventilator and who doesn't. Can you sort of explain what this looks like? You know, we back at Punahou, I remember having some ethical discussions in classes in high school and everything seems so theoretical. And here you are potentially making life or death choices, which I guess you've, you've probably made in the past, but probably not on the scale that we're going to see in the next few weeks. What, what is the discussion in the hospital and what is, what is that like for you personally? So we're having this um, discussion now, which is a very interesting timing because Governor Cuomo in New York uh, State has just announced that physicians are not going to be sued unless there's gross negligence. Um, I think he has put that out just as a personal opinion. I don't know why he's put it out, but I think it might be because we're hearing these reports from Italy where they, when they run out of ventilators, they're limiting uh, who they're putting on ventilators. So look, I'm going to be um, completely frank. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it, but I know that we've talked about it in our group of physicians at the hospital. We do deal with critical care physicians. We always deal with life and death every single day. And uh, in a sense, we're, you know, making some decisions on how to treat these patients uh, to a certain point. Of course, we live in America. That's where, you know, we talk to family members and make sure that we are able to respect their dignity at the end of their life, also during their life, too. So I think it's a balance right now. We do know that from statistics wise, patients that are elderly do not survive this. So if it comes down to having to limit resources, I think we're going to have to follow what China and Italy are doing. And I hope it doesn't come to that. But we are being very aggressive about talking to family members, talking to loved ones, very upfront and being very frank with them about what the chances are. And I think everyone's been very understanding so far. I've had multiple conversations uh, just today. I just got back from talking about an hour to uh, sons and daughters of a patient that's 83 years old 
So uh, her odds are very, very low to make it out of the hospital at this point. Um, and the children understand that. Some hospitals are disallowing visitors because of the risk of spread. And so does that make that choice easier or harder when you can't consult with families? And, and are you able to see DNR directives and other end, uh, end of life directives? Um, so yes, it definitely makes it harder. I'm definitely more of a people's person. I want to be in front of them. I want to be able to see them, touch them. And it makes it that much harder for me to have that conversation over the phone. I catch myself apologizing over and over again, that this is such a hard time that I can't see them in person. And I'm sorry that they can't come in. Um, we are not allowing any visitors in the ICU. Uh, we do make exceptions for patients that are actively dying um, or that we are going to terminally exhibit, uh, those types of patients. We are allowing one healthy visitor at a time to come and visit. Once somebody's also passed away, we do allow visitors too. So we do make exceptions to that. But if we are doing everything in our power to keep somebody alive, we do not want any visitors to try to, uh, maybe have asymptomatic carriers that come into the hospital and spread the disease. So we're not allowing that. I wonder, given the amount of exposure and the number of hours that you're spending at the hospital, do you assume that you're just going to get COVID at some, some point? Is that the operating assumption for most medical professionals? I think it is. Unfortunately, um, we are the highest risk uh, doing these really high risk procedures. Do I think that I already have it? Possibly. It could be an asymptomatic carrier. Maybe I had a mild case of the disease and I'm over it now. I, I don't know. Um, but that is the assumption amongst all of us. And uh, we are protecting other physicians that may be higher risk for contracting this disease and becoming very ill. So um, I think that's also another decision that we make amongst us physicians to see who's on the front lines and uh, who can maybe cover other uh, responsibilities that we can't cover because we're in the COVID ICU. The testing protocol up until now has been pretty strict. You have to be showing symptoms to get the test because they're they're still pretty constrained in terms of availability. Do you think as the testing capability ramps up that 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 criteria will be relaxed for medical personnel so that you know whether you're asymptomatic or not? So I was serendipitously in the ICU, assigned to the ICU when this hit our hospital. So I got to see different stages of this. When they first um, came into New York City and we start, started seeing patients, only DOH and uh, LabCorp were testing, meaning that the return time for these lab tests were five to six days. Amongst this five to six days, patients were going into renal failure. A lot of these patients go into renal failure and they need require dialysis. Once they go into renal failure, they are not candidates um, for these experimental drugs. So essentially, I was fighting to limit the amount of testing so that DOH could get my tests back faster, but it didn't make a difference in the end. So that was stage one. Stage two was that we were trying to get all these labs throughout the city up and running. So each hospital, Columbia, NYU, Sinai, uh, Northwell, all these hospitals made their own labs uh, go start up and running for all of these lab tests. Now we are up and running and we are getting tests back within 12 hours. 
Uh, we are sending it to our own institutions. It's coming back very quickly. And we are testing whoever needs to be tested. Employees are getting tested if they need. There's CDC guidelines on when they can return to work. Um, it's usually after their symptoms have dissipated and uh, there's a specific time frame. So there are some healthcare workers already on our teams that are positive, that are recovered. So that's good. Um, and we'll see, you know, how many more get infected throughout the, the time that we have to deal with this. I, I want to know what your mom and your sister think about you being on the front line and where your where your mental health is right now. So I'm perfect for this job, honestly. I don't <laughs> <laughs> it's so ridiculous to say this, but I was just talking to like, you know, some of my very close friends on, you know, our FaceTime group chat. And, um, they were saying, you know, that their friends are asking them if I'm doing okay, you know, same question you just asked. And they turned around and they were like, of course she's thriving in this. This is like the perfect <laughs> environment for her. And, you know, I think, you know, a part of it is a joke and part of it is is real. I think, you know, I signed up for this job because I know that when someone's dead in the, the room in front of me, the whole room slows down and I can think the most clearly in, a, in that situation. When it's an emergency situation and I need to think clearly in that moment in time, that's the that's that's the best time for me. And I think that is right now. Although it is just a much, much longer and more spread out time. It's a marathon a little bit. Um, so mentally, I'm doing great. I am prepared. I feel like this is my time to kind of, um, you know, shine and kind of cover everyone else. So I'm okay. Um, to answer your question about what my family is thinking, um, I think they 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 know that who I am and they know that I'm okay. And um Actually, mom hasn't checked in with me too much. I think she knows that I need to do my thing. And sister's a hypochondriac. And so she is asking me a lot of questions, but she's okay too. So um, we're all on a good page here. For more information or for links to resources mentioned in this podcast, go to bulletin.punahou.edu.